You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The scripture reading for this evening is from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all power and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. We delight to sit under it, to be a people assembled under your word. God, we pray that you would make us more and more into people of your spirit, into people uh, conformed into the image of Jesus. We pray now that you would mold us and make us after your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is both a lower elementary night and a torch night. So if you are a lower elementary student and have already checked in, or if you are a fourth through sixth grader and want to head out with Cedric and Abby and talk about this whole whole armor, and James, oh, this party tonight, oh, whatever, yeah. Well, uh, we have made it to the end of Paul's incredible letter to the Ephesians. Uh, and I'm sorry if I, the way I described it last week, made it sound like we've got two more weeks of Ephesians. This is it. Tonight is the night. And with all of like these like little boys going out, I'm, I think they're sad to miss out on the whole armor of God sermon. Like I loved this stuff and the felt board and all of the things in like 1989. But they'll still get to talk about all this stuff with these great leaders. <clears throat> well, uh, certainly modern day soldiers still wear armor. This wasn't just a, like a first century Roman thing, and now we don't have any categories for this kind of thinking. Uh, modern day armor is a bit more subtle. There's like camo and bulletproof vests, camo helmets, combat boots, uh, but you can still perhaps imagine the kinds of things that Paul is describing here. It's not an entirely foreign thing. 
Soldiers aren't the only ones that wear armor, though, today. Uh, just think about what football players put on. Shoulder pads, like thigh and hip pads, helmets. But it's the context that makes wearing all of that stuff actually make sense. Like, what if you saw a guy just, like, walking out in full pads, like, through the mall? Or if you were on vacation on the beach and saw a guy in, like, shoulder pads and a helmet, like, catching some rays? That would make no sense. But also, what if the opposite were true? What if, like, a UNM football game, uh, one of the players went out in, like, flip-flops and cargo shorts? Or if an army infantryman like jumped out of the helicopter with a suit and a tie. The context of where you are determines what you should wear and how you should prepare. But those scenarios that I just gave actually aren't the same. If you wear a football uniform to the beach or an infantry uniform to a business meeting, you might get some confused looks, you might be a little uncomfortable, it will be a little weird. But if you don't wear a football uniform to the game or your infantry uniform into battle, you could be seriously injured or worse. So in this last section of Ephesians 6, Paul is tying up everything that he has already been writing since chapter 1. Nearly everything theme that we have covered over the past many, many months together is repeated here. He's already introduced it and then is repeating, repeating, repeating. So many of the themes and words, including all of the words of the armor pieces, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the spirit, all of these things are major themes throughout the letter of Ephesians. We have been over and over and over again thinking about this letter being Paul's way of pulling together this idea that God is bringing all things into unity with Jesus. And we spent the, the past many weeks slowly working through the seemingly mundane and on-the-ground applications of that reality. These high and spiritual realities of the gospel then, they, then get played out in the very practical realities of our days, our speech, our homes, all of these things. Well, here, Paul is going to now lift our gaze back up, back up from just the words that are coming out of our mouth or how we parent or how we work or whatever those things are, and lift our gaze back up now to the high and to the beyond, to the unseeable realities at work in the world. And so one commentator summarizes, saying that from chapter 4, verse 17 on, Paul has been urging his readers to stand against the pagan lifestyle around them. Gross sins should not even be named among them, and they should separate from and reprove the darkness. Their homes should reflect the unifying and self-giving character of the gospel, and all of this requires determined effort, for the darkness is still very present. This is what we've been talking about, intentionality, a deliberate Christian life. We've taken great comfort in the reality that God is bringing all things into unity with Jesus, that there is a gaining and unifying momentum in this, like, mall quarter funnel that is finding its centering unity in Jesus. For the Christian, this is wonderfully good news. Think back a couple of chapters ago, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, Paul says. And so he says in chapter 5, walk as children of light. But what about those for whom the kingdom of Jesus is not received as good news? The light and life of Jesus is not something that is a beckoning, welcoming reality, but where the darkness grabs in and then refuses to be brought into union with Jesus, to remain in the dark, to remain in the death. This is the world, the realm in which we currently live. God the Father, by the work of the Son and the power of the Spirit, has brought Christians out of the darkness and into the light, but the darkness is still there. 
both externally all around, but then even still internally. Lingering sin in the Christian, lingering self-worship in the Christian. And so what Paul is going to do now is he's going to say, you got to be aware of all of this, of the darkness that still remains externally and internally. I've been trying to tell you for several chapters that the Christian life is one of deliberate intentionality. That chapter five, the days are evil, but you must do your best to redeem the time. Meaning your days, your weeks, even your hours matter to who you are for the glory of God. And so now, like how can I best summarize this? Paul might be realizing he's nearing the end of the space available to him on the scroll. How can I make them understand all of these things, all of these things? To ignore all of these things, all of this deliberate intentionality that a Christian must, must walk into, how can I think about this in such a way that might grip their imaginations? Maybe it's like almost as if you were to go into a football game wearing flip-flops or to walk into battle in a suit and tie. The context of where you are absolutely must dictate how you prepare and how one acts. So this has been a huge intro here, but I think it's, been, it's important for us to set this context for what and why Paul is doing here. So we're going to think through the rest of chapter 6 under three headings. Uh, a spiritual warfare, which will get most of our time and attention, and then a spiritual watchfulness and a spiritual encouragement. Warfare, watchfulness, and encouragement. So, in verses 10 through 17, a spiritual warfare. He says in verse 10, Paul says, finally, and I love how even Mark grabbed hold of that word and emphasized it, finally, finally, in light of everything that he has written up until this point in this letter and everything that we've thought about over the past many, many months together, he says, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. And while it's not immediately clear to us, be strong is in the passive form here, meaning we could, it could, this could just as easily be translated, be strengthened in the Lord, especially since he then tells us what it means to be strong or to be strengthened in the strength of his might. So we're going to dig deeper into what all this means, but I want us to see what he's saying from a, like a big picture here in verses 10 through 13. Verse 10 kind of acts as a heading for the rest of this section. Be strengthened by God in his might. And then how might we do that? Well, verse 11, by putting on the armor that he provides. For what purpose? Second part of verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the, the schemes of the devil. And, and why is all that important? Why is it important to be strengthened by him and to put on his armor? Well, Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the reason why all this is important. The battle that we walk into and wage against is not a physical battle, but a spiritual one. And then, in case you missed it, what he said in verse 11, he says it again in verse 13. Therefore, because all that's true, Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So we've already seen Paul hammer on standing and walking throughout Ephesians. We've seen him say, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Walk as children of light. And that we, together as the church, grow into maturity, no longer as children, tossed to and fro by waves of new doctrine. Well, here, standing is a huge deal. The word stand or withstand 
appears four times here in verses 11 through 14. He's got this idea of like perhaps waves coming and tossing to and fro and the Christians standing resolutely, withstanding the things that are coming and changing, which is the entire point of everything that we thought about since chapter four. Again, Paul is not concerned that someone somewhere out there might be having fun. Someone somewhere might be having fun, so I'm gonna tell them all the things that Christians must not do. That's not his concern. He is concerned that we might lose sight of the reality that what we think is mundane and trivial and not that big of a deal, a righteous life, becoming more like Jesus, all of that stuff, the mundane, is actually part of a cosmic struggle over light and darkness. Again, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, when I was in middle school in the late 90s, uh, I read and then reread and reread a popular Christian novel called This Present Darkness so many times. Anybody else? All right. Wow, more hands than I thought. Uh, this novel uh, was set in a small Midwest town, but half of the story, it was kind of like, there's two stories going on parallel and simultaneously. Half of the story was getting to know the names and the backstories of the very angels and demons that were invisibly behind the scenes working and trying to manipulate and persuade and battle over the souls and the fate of this small town. And on the one hand, stories like that can be very helpful, and I loved it as a seventh and an eighth grader. It was gripping on the imagination. I think it rightly, as a middle schooler, made me come to an awareness of a world in which Paul absolutely believes to be true, a spiritual, unseen world. There, there is more to our universe than can just be empirically uh, verifiable, a material universe. There is more out there. There is an influential, unseen realm. And yet, on the other hand, stories like This Present Darkness which obviously takes almost an entire uh, view of the universe from just a few verses like here in Ephesians 6 and a couple of verses plucked here or there elsewhere from the Bible and can perhaps over-inflate what might be going on in this unseen realm. The appeal of that story was that it was set in a anywhere America small town in the Midwest. And if the spiritual battle in anywhere America, small town, Midwest America, is that intense there, then it must be crazy everywhere. But is it? Now, we're not going to work through an entire theology of demons and spiritual warfare here tonight, but I'll say this. Paul is absolutely concerned that we be aware of a battle that is raging. He mentions the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers. These are very real things in Paul's understanding of the universe. And as many months ago, Jordan preached about, in, way back in chapter 2, about these powers, the prince of the power of the air in chapter 2. There are forces at play that seek to manipulate and deceive the world away from the light of Christ, to persuade against everything that we've thought about over the past many weeks together, that ethical Christian living does not matter, that truth does not matter, that drunkenness or sexual immorality does not matter, that our homes, the real you, is just fine the way it is and does not ongoingly need the transformation of the Spirit. 
Paul is concerned about those influences, but he is not scared. He is aware, but he is not anxious. While in the novel, this present darkness, uh, spoiler alert, good wins in the end of that novel. Uh, But if I'm remembering rightly, I haven't read it in 20-something years, if I'm remembering rightly, the tone of that book is just full of anxiety. Even in the way that the angels fought against the demonic powers, the angels' strength depends on how many Christians are praying for them to provide enough prayer cover. It's like, we don't know how things are going to go. There's this dualistic universe of good and evil, and it could go either way. You must pray. But here's the thing. God alone, God alone has certain qualities that only he possesses, the so-called omnis, that he is omnipresent, meaning God and God alone is everywhere. He is omniscient. God and God alone knows all things. He is omnipotent. God and God alone is all-powerful. Satan and any demonic powers are none of these. And yet I think we can sometimes have an unhealthy curiosity and obsession that he might be. That the forces of evil actually are omnipresent and omniscient and and omnipotent. While Paul wants us to stay alert and aware, Passages like these in the Bible, certainly even other passages in the gospel accounts with Jesus, they are not necessarily there for our curiosity about demonization or spiritual possession or oppression or something like that. But passages, especially in letters like Paul's, are really about ethics. Not about possession and oppression, but Christian ethics. Paul doesn't seem to be writing about how he thinks these spiritual powers are working or manipulating governments or world events or wars or something like this. Maybe he believes that. I don't know. But he's certainly not worried about those things or losing any sleep over them. The battle that we fight in are not about flesh and blood, not about governments, but it is a spiritual battle. The reason that he is writing about these powers and authorities at all is because he's concerned that they will keep ordinary Christians from leading the kinds of faithful lives that he's been talking about and talking about and talking about and talking about, as we'll see. Or as one commentator puts it, the powers do not deserve attention. They deserve avoidance. We are not to be swayed by or persuaded by spiritual powers, but we must stand firm, Christians must, which in light of the rest of this letter undoubtedly means that we just must persevere and walk in a manner worthy of the calling. No longer as the Gentiles, as Paul would say. Do not be swayed or persuaded by these powers, but stand, stand firm, withstand. Ethical Christian lives, a manner worthy of the calling, Walking in an ethical Christian life as children of the light, as citizens of the city of God, and believing in right, true doctrine, not swayed by false teaching. There are powers out there, but they are defeated powers. They are subjected powers. In Colossians 2, 15, Paul says that he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. We rightly sang just a few minutes ago that Jesus has defeated sin and hell. 
Or as we regularly also sing in Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress, the prince of darkness grim, that's grim, that's not good, but what's the next line? We tremble not for him. For his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One word from the Lord Jesus, and it's over. We wait that day. It hasn't happened yet, but the powers that we experience in this world are subjected and mortally wounded powers. We should not lose sleep over them. These powers are not to be obsessed over, but are to be avoided. But we also sing in the mighty fortress that if we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. And that's true. Because this is a spiritual battle, if we just try to do it on our own, we will lose. And so what does Paul tell us to do? He says, to be strengthened in the Lord and the strength of his might and to put on the whole armor of God or to put on all of God's armor. Now, where does where else, I've said already that most of the rest of this chapter in chapter six is just repeating themes that Paul has already talked about in the, rest of the, in the rest of the letter. Where else does Paul talk about putting something on in Ephesians? Ephesians 4. You wanna, if you want to put your finger in chapter 6 and flip over one page in Ephesians 4, chapters, or verses 22 through 24, Paul says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Remember we talked about put off, put on, put off the old self, put on the new self. Keep putting on the newly created self of the spirit, created after the likeness of God. Put on God. Put on the armor of God. Or similarly in chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul said, be imitators of God. Become like him. That's what this whole armor of God stuff is just all about. Like I did a Google search for the whole armor of God this week, and it was just like my like 1989 imagination remembered it. It's great. Lots of great pictures, lots of Roman soldiers, even lots of like little boy soldiers uh, with like diagrams and like pointing to the helmets and the belts and all of these things. And that's great. Nearly all of these things are Roman items. It's probably right here that we put when we see images of the whole armor, it's like a Roman military uniform. This is definitely something that Paul would have had in mind, the kind of armored uniforms that he and these very Ephesians would have seen walking their streets every single day. But here's the thing about this armor. It's not Roman armor. It's God's armor. Nearly all of the references that Paul makes here are references not to Rome, but he's actually making direct Bible references to the book of Isaiah, who wrote five to 600 years earlier before the Roman Empire. When Paul says in verse 14, he says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, we don't necessarily need to then think about and like do this deep Roman military history, deep dive to understand what it means to have like truth holding on all of your clothes together and then like righteousness covering your heart, the most important part of your body or something, while all of those might be wonderfully good lessons. Instead, Paul is alluding to Isaiah 11, where God himself, God himself 
comes to deliver his people and judge their enemies by putting on a belt of covenantal faithfulness. In Isaiah 59, where again, God himself, quote, put on, a right, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, God does. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. It is God himself who is all of these things perfectly. Righteousness, truth, salvation, peace, readiness, faithfulness. And in fact, all of these words and characteristics are covenantal realities. It is, these things are who God is and what he is, what he is and what he does. Truth, righteousness, salvation. And then what he expects in a response from his covenantal people, his covenantal partners. These things prompt the like response from his covenantal people. Be imitators of God. And so when Jesus comes to his people and he invites them into the new covenant of his blood with a helmet of salvation on his head, that you and that you and that you and that anyone who hears the words of Jesus to come, all who labor, to come all who are heavy laden and find rest in him, that you might become sons and daughters of God, that he might fight for you and win, that we can all come to his cross and have our sins forgiven finally and fully, and that we can then walk in his righteousness, in his peace, in his truth, in his salvation, that we might be his people. But even better than that, that we might even be spiritually united to his life in his death and his resurrection. That chapter two, we might be seated with him in the heavenly places. And having been, chapter one, blessed by God with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, because of all that, now Paul is saying in just a really, really imaginative way, remember all that. Remember all of it. He's already told us to put off the old self and put on the new, so it wouldn't have been any different here in chapter 6 if he had just said, okay, Ephesians, so I want you to remember, and let's tie a bow up on all of this, put on truth, put on righteousness, put on readiness and faith and salvation. Instead, what an image, what, an, what, what, what imaginative imagery now is given to all of us of every son and daughter of the Most High King gearing up for battle of putting on the very character of God to walk into a world of darkness. Again, his point isn't to get you to think about which quality is to be associated with which part of your body. After all, here, the breastplate is righteousness, whereas in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul tells the, Thess the Thessalonians there to put on the breastplate of faith and love. So it's kind of, he's just swimming around in Roman imagery here. Instead, he's saying, put on Christ. Put on the new self. Be imitators of God. To ignore all of that, to not put on Christ, is to jump out of the helicopter with flip-flops and cargo shorts. You're gonna die. The Christian life is not an anxious life. It is sure and it is certain because we follow a sure and certain victorious king. But a passive Christian life is a vulnerable life. A passive Christian life is a vulnerable life. An active Christian life is a victorious one. 
Daily putting on Christ, his righteousness, his truth, his peace, is like putting on an invincibility suit. Not invincible against any kind of pain or loss or grief, but invincible against ultimate loss of faith, against ultimate ungodliness that remains in the darkness. To put on Jesus and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, to seek to know him. So I think the kind of thing that Paul is getting after here is just how often is it lunchtime in your day or beyond before you remember that like God actually exists? Do you sometimes go four, five, six, seven, ten hours in the day before you really like, before you remember? Oh yeah, God exists, and I actually believe I think that I exist for Him. That should not be. And it actually puts you in a very vulnerable place. A passive Christian life is a vulnerable life. Now, there's nothing magical about reading the Bible in the morning, like just after you wake up. Spiritual power isn't like a water faucet that you open and then gain access to. But just reminding yourself that God is God, that I am not, that Jesus loves me, that I should want to become like him, that I need his help today makes all the difference in my day, in my next hour, Certainly in my week, my month, and my year, when I just stack up those hours and days on top of each other. So, verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I've minimized the connection between like the characteristic and the piece of armor, but the shield of faith is just so good. It's so good. It's been said that when, when we say, I have faith, that means nothing. Right? Just think about how people use that phrase. I have faith, or I'm a person of faith. I think if we asked most Americans if they have or if they value faith, many, if not most, would say, yeah, yeah. But who cares if you have faith? If faith is just good vibes and positive feelings, then faith is actually meaningless, It's just faith in faith. Faith is only as good as the object in which we are placing our faith. So I have faith means nothing, but when we think God is a trustworthy God, that means everything. The phrase I have faith means nothing. God is a trustworthy God means everything. If the powers actually do have dangerous and wounding arrows that can diminish our response to God, then walking through life with God is a trustworthy God. God is a trustworthy God. God is a trustworthy God. I believe him. I trust him. Come what may, he is good. He knows, he sees, he cares. I love him. I trust him. I know him and respond then with this defensive weapon and with the only offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit, the word of God taking his word and his promises and swinging that thing wildly, wildly fighting off, taking his word and his promises and banking my entire existence on those promises. This is how we walk. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling like a soldier. God is a trustworthy God here and the sword of the Spirit here. By putting on Christ by becoming like him, by becoming an imitator of God, by swinging God's word against the devil's lies. But we cannot bank our lives on that which we do not know. 
on that which we do not internalize, on that which we do not ingest and breathe as a very way of life. This is the Christian life, to redeem the time, to know God, to live in the peace of the cross, and then to imitate him, to walk in righteousness, to build up the church. Because that's another thing that we miss, perhaps, in our English translations, that all of these imperative commands to put on, to stand firm, to take up the helmet and the sword, and on and on, all of those are plural commands. All of this is to be played out in our lives together. Not that you just come to church and then you go home and you do your best to read and pray by yourself as best you can, and then you come back to church the next week. Then you're just going to go off week by week and fight off the devil by yourself. The U.S. Army was rightly criticized about 15 years ago or so, mostly by current or former Army personnel, when the U.S. Army rolled out a new advertising campaign. Do you remember the one that I'm talking about? The slogan that the U.S. Army adopted for themselves, and there was, it was like the re- recruiting pitch to new, perhaps new enlistees, was an army of one. Here's where you can kind of like, perhaps you're lacking meaning in your life, you can join the army and become a really disciplined and regimented individual, individual person. And veterans and current army personnel were like, wait, what? All of that goes against everything that you have trained me to believe about myself and about the army. That this is a cohesive and bonded plurality that works as one body. Tons of little armies of one. I don't know how many current U.S. Army military personnel there are, but if, I don't know, 50,000, 100,000, a million, I don't even know. However many, you get that many individual armies of one, it's going to splinter and fall apart. But one army of many will flourish, will succeed. And I'm pretty sure that Paul has the exact same thing in mind here. Individually, you will falter and you will fail. You try to go put on the helmet of salvation and extinguish the devil's lies and his arrows, flaming darts, you're going to falter and fail. The image that Paul keeps going to and going to and going to in Ephesians is that of a body, of belonging to a body. Together, the plural, singular bride of Christ. Together, building each other up in love. When we do this, we will flourish and succeed. And so we absolutely should pray and read individually. Yes and amen. But our spiritual disciplines are corporately oriented. I want to grow so that you all will benefit. I want to put sin to death so that you all will not be affected. I want you to grow, and I want you to be encouraged so that I might be encouraged, so that I might not be affected by sin, so that the body builds itself up in love, in growing imitation of the Lord Jesus, in his faith, in his peace, in his salvation, in his righteousness, that I weep when you weep, and that you rejoice when I rejoice, and on and on and on. And so a passive Christian life is a vulnerable life. 
But an active Christian life is a victorious life. A passive Christian church is a vulnerable church. An active Christian church is a victorious church, becoming like Jesus, walking, standing, withstanding. Which now gets us to our second point in verses 18 through 20. That of a spiritual watchfulness. That if we are to corporately take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, then verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So prayer and alertness go together. Going back to how we began our days, back, going back to Luther, that if we in our own strength confide, Kevin DeYoung says this, to start the day without prayer is to suggest the devil is feeble, that God is irrelevant, and that we can handle things on our own. Now, none of us would answer yes to any of those things on a theological exam. And yet, how many days of our weeks, when we begin our days without prayer, are we actually answering that question on that theological exam of our lives? To start the day without prayer is to suggest the devil is feeble, that God is irrelevant, and that we can handle things on our own. Putting on the full armor of God, God's armor means that you must first have a recognition for the need for it. I do not put on armor or a football uniform unless I recognize that this is for my good, for my health. An alertness, a right understanding of reality means that you dress appropriately. Our life is one of confident and sure hope. Remember, the powers are real, but they are disarmed and subjected powers. And yet, a passive Christian life is a vulnerable life. Vulnerable against unbelief. Vulnerable against cooling or hardening loves, vulnerable against false or wrong teaching or doctrine that infiltrates and shipwrecks. We need each other. We need each other. Praying at all times in the Spirit, Paul says, which is just another way of saying walking or being filled in the Spirit like we thought about so many times throughout this book. Being filled by the Spirit, empowered, encouraged, even constrained or corrected by the work of God in our lives, and, ongoingly and, and ongoingly acknowledging all of this throughout our days. And this is what the word always means. Paul does not envision Christians like beside their bedsides on their knees 18 hours a day, praying always. No, but walking with God, communing with God, living our lives as if God actually and really exists. That he actually and really knows all and sees all, and he desires for the good of his children. We need the power of God for perseverance, not just for ourselves, but for each other. What Paul says, making supplication for all the saints. Your fellow church members need you to grow in your discipline to pray. Your fellow church members need you to grow in your discipline to pray. We need each other. And not just that we might depend on one another, but for those who are sent out among us. This isn't an apples-to-apples apples comparison here. Paul is an apostle doing many new and first-century, like, epic-turning 
things in the history of salvation, but we are sending Miss V back out to North Africa. And Paul's words in verse 19 absolutely should, we could take those words from Paul as if she had, she had written them to us for her. Verse 18, making supplication for all the saints, and then verse 19, listen to her voice in your head. And also from me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, while Miss V is not a literal prisoner in literal chains, what a wonderful and freeing place that she is. She has found herself to be a servant of Christ, bounded to him, following him closely, even to a place of darkness, of difficulty. We pray for her, not because if we don't, God won't be able to accomplish what he would otherwise want to, but there just aren't enough Christians praying, but because we know and we believe that God is omnipresent, that God is omniscient, that God is omnipotent. Because all those things are true, we are calling on him to do those things, to do the things that Chapter 1, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that he might do all of those things in the place where she is as well. We are experiencing all of these things here in Albuquerque. May it be so for the people in which she is giving her lives to there as well. So a right and clear understanding of the spiritual warfare around us, seeing clearly, must bring about a spiritual watchfulness, both for ourselves and for each other, that we might more and more be brought into unity with Jesus. And so to wrap up this letter, Paul then sends along one final spiritual encouragement. Verse 21, he says, So that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing. Tychicus, the, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This isn't just a wrap-up. It is, but Paul is sending his good and faithful worker Tychicus to deliver this letter. Why? Why is he sending him? to give this letter so that he can fill them in on all that's happening and so that he might encourage their hearts. Their hearts might be warmed. And perhaps thinking that there might still be lingering like Jew and Gentile division, he offers in verse 23, peace be to the brothers and love with faith. Peace and love from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this final sentence, verse 24, is a weird Greek sentence. And nearly every translation, if you were to look it up and Perhaps somebody next to you has an NIV or a King James or something. They all are different because nobody quite knows how to translate this verse 24, that grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. But we can be pretty confident that Paul isn't offering grace to only those who love Jesus with an incorruptible or eternal love. Like in this life, none of us do that. Praise be to God for his grace that he brings us to love for Christ. Likely a better way to phrase this would be grace and incorruptibility or grace and immortality be with all those who are loving our Lord Jesus. It is a gift of God to love the Lord. 
And so walk in that gift and know him more and more by his grace until the day of immortality, when all things and all people are finally and fully brought into unhindered unity with Jesus. This is where the momentum of the universe is going and which we are wrapped up into. In this small church here, in this this western state in the United States, just a small church in a forgettable time, so many Christians have been encouraged by this letter, and until the Lord tarries, I think we'll continue to be. What a cosmic story that we are wrapped up into. To God be the glory. Wherever we find ourselves, whoever we are, Christians might take the words of Paul to walk in a manner worthy of the calling and to live an active Christian life, to become more and more like him, to be imitators of God. May it be so. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for this letter. We are so thankful for the letter of Ephesians. We are so thankful for that first audience. We are so thankful for your servant, Paul. We are so thankful for your spirit who has given us this letter to help us, to encourage us to be made more and more into the image of Jesus, to be uh, beckoned into life out of sin, out of self-worship, out of self-destruction. Father, this was the life of all of us. Perhaps, God, this might be a time where you might beckon someone here out of sin, that they might come to faith in the Lord Jesus to have their sins forgiven. God, you are so good, you are so patient, you are so kind. We pray that you would help us as a church to grow more and more into the person of Jesus, individually and corporately. That the gospel might be persuasive to those around us, that the gospel might be clear that your character might be made known to those in our lives. And we pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.